Welcome to the September 2018 Wilderness and Environmental Live Podcast Show. Today, we've got two great journal articles, and this will be a special edition on our podcast because we're going to discuss the 2015 Mount Everest Base Camp earthquake. Then, we'll have a chat about a little green whistle from a journal article written by Dr. Matt Wilkes and discussed with our own Dr. Jake Jensen. Just a few updates. Yes, we had a great WMS summer annual meeting in Midway, Utah, and our editorial board is always open to your suggestions on how to improve our journal. Dr. Bob Quinn is now the new president, and we hope to have, very soon, a Pan Wilderness Fellow Podcast Program that will come soon, so there's more to follow. But for now, let's get on with it, shall we? Almost 200 climbers are trapped on Mount Everest when the Nepalese earthquake strikes. Whoa, 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 it's over. 18 people die on the mountain. But some have a miraculous escape. <laughs> Away from the mountain, the devastation is far worse. More than 8,000 people have died. Well, I am with Dr. Andrew Nyberg, who is a co-author of our journal paper entitled Wilderness Mass Casualty Incident Rescue Chain After Everest Base Camp in 2015. Andrew, it's great to have you here. Thanks so much. It's really good to be here. First, Andrew, tell us about yourself and what you're up to. I heard you're going to Mongolia, huh? Yeah, so I'm an emergency physician. Uh... I'm currently working in Park City, Utah, and also in uh, Heber Valley, which is actually where the, at this point, the upcoming WMS conference will be. It'll probably be over by the time this gets published. But, and so I'm an ER doctor working there. I did a wilderness medicine fellowship and a master's of public health at the University of Utah. Currently do a lot of running. And as you mentioned, I'm going to Mongolia in just a couple of days to uh, participate in the Four Deserts Racing the Planet Ultra Marathon, where I'll be running 150 miles or 250 kilometers over a, a staged seven-day course. Uh, so kind of like, like you said, uh, we're practicing what we preached a little bit and getting out into the middle of nowhere uh, where we can get ourselves into all sorts of trouble. Well, you've done travel in the Everest region previously, and you've worked with the Himalayan Rescue Association. So... Briefly, tell us about that. Sure. Well, I know that a lot of our WMS readership and, and members uh, know a lot about Nepal and have visited there. But for people who kind of don't understand why a person would go to that part of the world, it's an absolutely beautiful uh, land with some of the highest mountains in the world, a wonderful culture. Uh, the the um, Sherpa people are incredibly warm and welcoming. Uh, and so a lot of the people that tend to go there, especially in the springtime, are either going because they're part of a, a climbing expedition to go to one of the major mountains like Everest, or they may not have any intentions of climbing, but they have always dreamed of seeing Everest or, or being at the base camp of Everest and uh, watching all the activity unfold as these uh, world-class athletes are climbing the highest mountain in the world. Major top. Thoughts? 
still catching my breath. I don't know if I would do it again if I had the chance. Never, ever. But, if I were at the top. Hey, I'm so proud of you. So we get a kind of a mixed group of people who uh, tend to go through that region in the springtime as well as the fall. Uh, and so I was volunteering my time in 2015 working for an organization called the Himalayan Rescue Association, uh, which is based out of Kathmandu, but they run clinics in Farache, which is on the route to Everest, as well as one in Manang, which is on the Annapurna route. They've uh, been in operation since 1973, working in the spring and the fall climbing seasons uh, and having doctors available in that location, primarily because they were just noticing that there were a lot of people who were going up into that area, exploring these beautiful mountains and getting sick from altitude sickness without any real medical care at all. And so the role of the Himalayan Rescue Association is to bring volunteer doctors into that area where uh, they can help people who are in distress because they're not acclimatizing well to the altitude. Did you see a lot of altitude pathology during your three-month stay at the HRA? Yeah, it was a little cut a little bit short by the earthquake, but yes, essentially we were there for three months. And when we did our end-of-season statistics, we saw that we were evacuating about 11% of our population before the, uh, before the earthquake uh, for mostly for HAPE and a little bit of HACE, high altitude uh, pulmonary edema and high altitude cerebral edema. Uh, and so we absolutely see it. Um, you know, we're, it's a very limited facility uh, where all of our power is based off of solar and, and primarily the, the whole reason we have power is just to run oxygen concentrators uh, because there's really, it's not feasible to have oxygen tanks or large oxygen supply there. And so a lot of the work that we're doing is simply keeping people on auction concentrators or using uh, using these kind of portable pressure chamber bags that, that people can carry uh, that you can put someone in that'll basically drop the uh, their relative altitude by about a couple uh, thousand feet, uh, which can make a huge difference if you're suffering from altitude sickness. But ultimately, the, the cure for altitude sickness is to get out of the altitude. And so uh, really, we're, these are kind of temporizing measures until we can get them to a lower altitude. So it was April 15th, 2015. Everest Base Camp is 5,360 meters, about 17,600 feet in elevation. You're further down at Ferriche, 4,300 meters or 14,000 feet in elevation. Could you feel that earthquake? Oh, absolutely. I was, uh, I was like, so there was three docs stationing at Farache and I was, we kind of would rotate who was the sort of the on-duty doc. I was actually taking care of a patient at the time, uh, and the local Nepali who just came in for a cough, which is a very, very common complaint, uh, around there. And yeah, the whole building just shook and our clinic manager was like, he knew a lot about earthquakes and he was like, get out of the building. And so we all ran for cover. Luckily, the building, the aid post, took a little bit of damage to one wall, but was essentially still intact. But uh, Farache is on a riverbed, and so the vast majority of the town, almost every building, I think there was only two buildings in town that were not affected by the earthquake, uh, and at least one building was pretty much completely totaled. Uh, there was quite a bit of damage. 
the earthquake happened at noon, which was incredibly fortunate because there was just not a lot of people inside. I mean, if it had happened at midnight when people were sleeping in all the lodges, uh, families were sleeping in their homes, it would have been uh, absolutely tragic, not only for us and Farache, but just for the entire country. So it's about noon. The earthquake must have had a very strange vibe. Yeah, so everybody, again, most people were out trekking or outdoors of some sorts. People kind of all came out. And probably the biggest, it was just for us in Farache afterwards, it was a really eerie sense. And primarily it was an eerie sense because we really lost all communication. And as various trekkers and stuff would come into town, they'd be asking, you know, what do you know? What can you tell me? I have a loved one here. Do you know if they're safe? And we had lost all communications. Uh, we had previously in the season, we'd set up a comms link with uh, Everspace Space Camp uh, where we could talk to them on the radio and that comm system went down. So we really were very isolated. We had no idea. We, we knew that we had been in an earthquake but we had no idea what had happened to the rest of the country, where the epicenter of the earthquake was, how big it was, or uh, why we couldn't talk to Everest Space Camp at the time. Uh, and it was the only reason we found out was uh, we actually had a satellite phone uh, and we could, although the communication systems throughout Kathmandu were either down or clogged with traffic, we were able to get a hold of the head of of the Himalayan Rescue Association who was in Kathmandu because he had a satellite phone. And that was the first time that we heard that there was an avalanche at Everest. Uh, but we didn't have any more information about that. We just knew that Everest had been, that Everest Space Camp had been damaged by uh, this avalanche. So yikes, how far is it from base camp to Farache? So uh, I can tell you in both practical and, and sort of real terms, uh, answers to that. Basically, for an average trekker, when they are making their trek, it takes about nine days to get from Lukla, which is where you fly in, up to Everest Base Camp. Uh, from where we are in Farache, you've already made a large part of that distance, but most trekkers, when they're heading towards Everest Base Camp, they will take them two full, uh, well, two full days to get to the nearest town to Everest Base Camp, and then another several hours trekking up to the to base camp itself. So, um, you know, really two good days to get up there. After the earthquake, we kind of sat around trying to figure out, you know, what was going on, waiting for patients to come in. And I can tell you the first patients that we saw from Everest Base Camp actually came in pretty much right at nine o'clock. I know this because we were about ready to go to bed. We were not sleeping in the, in the aid post because we felt that the building was unstable especially if there are any further earthquakes. Uh, and so we were staying out in a little sunroom that we had. And right about the time we were going to bed, we saw a whole bunch of headlamps coming towards us. And there was actually a group of uh, Nepalis who had been at Everest Base Camp. And when two of their friends had been thrown 15, 16 feet in the air uh, and landed, they basically grabbed them, threw them on the back of some uh, mules and carried them from Everest Base Camp down to us, and it took, us, took them nine hours to get to us by mule. And those were the first two patients that we saw. The one guy, I believe, had an elbow injury, and the other guy had several rib fractures, a pneumothorax, and I think possibly a kidney injury. Although, again, our 
uh, <laughs> testing facilities were basically we had urine dipstick, uh, pregnancy test, and an ultrasound machine. So I was able to identify the Mediata pneumothorax because I could see it on the ultrasound, but I really didn't have any means to put a chest tube or anything in. So I just put them on uh, a non rebreather mask with as much oxygen as I could coax out of the uh, out of the oxygen concentrators, and he did actually surprisingly well with that. Um, but he was definitely a pretty, you know, pretty critically injured patient. So no needle thoracostomy. I wonder how shocky this fellow was. He was actually fairly stable. I mean, we certainly monitored him closely all night. We could have done it. We could have needled his chest for sure. But um, you know, there's we have no no suction because again, we have no power to 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 keep like a suction system going. But he was stable enough that it, you know, he didn't actually need to be uh, decompressed. It did. It, he did not tension. Yep, this is a very interesting, full-on wilderness disaster. Everything is shaking. The whole ground is shaking. Do you do you hear that? most of the night helping victims as they trickled in or would they come in boluses? No, actually we didn't, we didn't see anyone else. I had seen one patient from the area who had a small laceration to her scalp. That was the only injury around our town. Uh, and then we had these two patients that came in at nine o'clock and we monitored them all night. And it wasn't until 5.30 in the morning when a helicopter flew overhead you know, that woke me up and, and that helicopter uh, had finally found a weather window to give, get up to Everest uh, because, of course, in all this, too, the weather was really bad. And that was one of the reasons why they couldn't evacuate people out of Everest the day of the earthquake was because there was no weather window for helicopters to fly. So the uh, you know, there's just a remarkable amount of work done by the doctors and the expedition leaders, as well as bystander volunteers up at Everest, uh, really creating a new hospital or healthcare system because the Everest ER tent had been destroyed and really kind of working on all these patients in incredibly austere conditions. Uh, and then in the early morning hours, the weather window cleared enough for one helicopter to get out uh, and get up there. And then it closed in around Lukla again. So for uh, probably about an hour or two, that one helicopter was was alone in ferrying uh, patients from Everest Base Camp down to us in Ferriche. That was about a 15-minute turnaround. He could take two sick patients and one walking wounded style patient in his helicopter. And this is, you know, you have to understand these are tourist helicopters that have no support team other than the pilot and no uh, no medical facilities at all, didn't have any sort of capabilities for caring for these patients while they were in the helicopter. So it was around Shortly after, you know, maybe about 6.30 or 7 that we received our first patients. And thankfully, all three of the doctors were in, uh, we were all in the clinic at the time. So it became clear to us that we were going to be getting a whole bunch of patients. And so we had to kind of come up with a plan with how we were going to deal with that uh, with just the three of us. 
And so the Himalayan Rescue Association's facility there has three beds and about three rooms. And so two of the doctors, uh, Katie Williams and myself, split up the clinic into two areas that we would each kind of take patients in. And then our third doctor, Renee Salas, took the sunroom and converted that into, a, into another staging area. And so as patients were coming in, people up at Everest Base Camp were doing the right thing to bring the sickest patients to us first. And so as these patients were coming in, we were each taking turns, kind of triaging them, trying to uh, address any wounds that we could and reprioritizing them. And then it becomes this big, how do you assess these patients? How do you determine who needs to go where, what kind of interventions we can do? And how do you communicate that in a system where there's no communication? I mean, we didn't know how many injured patients there were up at Everest Base Camp, and we had no way of communicating with the hospital in Lukla that we were sending patients there either. And so we actually came up with this ingeniously simple system of just putting big things of tape on people's chest and just writing on them what their injuries were. And then we would also number on the piece of tape what number they were in, in a triage priority. And so we, we started from this group of three doctors and our clinic staff supporting us, and then people from the town of Farache coming in and, and figuring out how to carry people from the landing zones, where it was safe for the helicopters to land, and also where we can put these people because we didn't have enough space in our hospital for the 70 to 80 people we ended up seeing that day. Uh, and so they actually took over one of the only still standing and functional lodges or hotels in the area, and we used their great room as, as a staging ground for some of the lesser sick people, while community leaders from Farache and the, and the neighboring town of Dingboche started going around and finding trekkers who had medical background, and there were actually several doctors and nurses and other medical professionals from all sorts of different countries that came over and started helping out and seeing patients. And so it was, it was this natural kind of incident command system that developed where initially Katie and Renee and I were taking care of all the patients ourselves. And then as more support came in, we could kind of subdivide our roles out and float higher up into the top and let other care providers do more of the direct care of the patients while we were in the end, Katie has managed the the landing area and and triaging who was going to get on what helicopter. I started managing more of the transport of patients from the clinic facility down to where the helicopters were. And then Katie, I'm sorry, and then Renee uh, remained with our sickest patients and was able to continue to care for them. So it kind of created this natural situation where, where we started to have more of a leadership role and less of a direct care role. But that was actually one of the things that was really important in that we had to kind of assert that we were the ones that needed to make decisions. Because if we hadn't done that, it easily could have, some layperson could have started making decisions about who was getting on what helicopter. And it was really important for us that we needed to make sure that the most medically uh, critical patients were getting on the helicopter down to Lukla. Because one of our big fears with the poor weather window that we had was that some of these people could be stuck here and we could be taking care of them all night. You know, that's fine, but we, it'd be really hard for us to take care of 
80 patients with our limited facilities and the only lodge in town full of patients when there's now trekkers and other people that are needing to stay there as well. You know, it, there was this really urgent sense of wanting to get the sickest people out of there. So if we had to care for people, I'd much rather care for walking wounded people than for people who, you know, really needed a higher level of care than what we could provide them. Je me rappelle avoir regardé sur ma gauche et avoir vu cet énorme nuage. C'était vraiment comme une explosion, très impressionnant. J'ai juste eu le temps d'attraper mon appareil, de prendre une photo, de regarder par le viseur. Et je me rappelle m'être dit, ce n'est pas le bon objectif, c'est trop serré. Comment vous avez-vous fait exercer une certaine mesure d'autorité sur les locaux, ainsi que les trekkers de tout le monde Comment vous dites, par exemple, look, nous sommes en charge ici Il y a eu un moment distinct. Moment. So part of it, I think, is, is that the Himalayan Rescue Association really does have a good reputation in that area for caring for people. And I think it is recognized. And the, our, we had two clinic managers, one of whom has been there many, many, many years and is very well known to that community and also knows how to work with that community. So I think having those local ties is so critical uh, when it comes to have, you know, trying to make sure that the right thing is happening. And it, this, this actually, this question came up in a very real way in that we were able to secure a large Russian style helicopter. It was an MI-16 or an MI-17. Uh, it was a, a, a large helicopter that basically could evacuate 17 patients at once. And we, but we didn't know how long we were gonna have it. We didn't know how long the weather window would hold. And, Before we knew it, the first time it touched down, 17 walking wounded essentially, you know, got on the helicopter before the more critically ill patients. The helicopter took off to go down to, to Lukla. And when, when we found that out, I was a little bit upset. And I just kind of yelled to everyone around the landing pad. I said, all right, nobody gets on a helicopter until, and I kind of looked around, Katie was right there, and I pointed to Katie. I said, unless Katie tells you, you can get on the helicopter. And probably 80 to 90% of the people had no idea what I was saying, but they could tell I was upset. And when I pointed straight at Katie, suddenly there was this very sense that, okay, this is the person in charge. And then Katie uh, and her then fiance, now husband, did a great job of putting people in, in, in order in a line everybody knew exactly where they were in line and exactly who went before them and who went after them uh, and that really you know it was like one of those moments where we just had to exert control and that and suddenly katie was in charge and you got on a helicopter or you didn't based on what katie said and you know so again that was one of those moments ironically afterwards uh, this was actually one of the things that we kind of discussed about how do we make sure that in future incidents that people know that There are healthcare people there. And I actually got one of our local ski resorts here in Utah to donate a number of old ski patrol jackets to us that we then flew over to Nepal for the Himalayan Rescue Association to have at their facilities so that in case of an of a incident in the future, that they could actually put on these jackets with big, big red jackets with white crosses on them to, to kind of indicate that this is a healthcare provider here that can, you know, that can help you out. Um, whether or not the big white cross means anything in Nepal, you know, is another debate. But I think at least for a lot of the tourists and stuff, they'd recognize that symbol as being healthcare. Brilliant.
it seems like communication issues were significant. Now, the Everest ER was destroyed, and medical supplies were also obviously destroyed. The outside world, furthermore, had no clue what happened. Caches of supplies could have been nice, but that didn't exist. Sat phones would have also certainly helped, but it didn't exist. But sounds like your medical training really kicked in well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think that kind of brings us to more of like the, so this was a really interesting story, but kind of what is, what's the point here? And it really, I know a lot of the readers of Wilderness and Environmental Medicine and a lot of the uh, Wilderness Medical Society members and people who are interested in wilderness and environmental medicine in general are the type of people who like to go on these kind of adventures or like to give back to a place that they love, like the Kumbu or some other part of the world. And it really kind of highlights communications and having backups. You know, one of the things that we had said is had we had a system, a backup system of satellite phones between Everspace Camp and Ferriche and Lukala and Kathmandu, we would have had a much easier time of communicating with one another. And the Everspace Camp doctors could have communicated what was going on with us what kind of patients they were seeing, what number of patients that they were seeing, and also if they were coming up with any sort of rescue plans. I don't think that the Everest Base Camp people got in touch with the helicopters. I believe the helicopters kind of decided to go up on their own because of, you have to remember in 2014, that was when there was that Kumbu icefall and there was another uh, incident there. And after that, the helicopter pilots had gotten together and come up with an informal plan to try to figure out how they would evacuate people from Everest if need be. And so they instigated that plan. And if, if I understand this correctly, they did not actually do that in communications with, uh, with Everest. Although I'm not, I'm not sure there's certainly a lot of communications equipment at Everest and maybe someone did get a message out to them. But I think that nobody really knew when a helicopter rescue from Everest would be possible. And certainly there was no communication between the helicopters and us that they would be bringing us patients until the first patients were on our doorstep. What experience, Andrew? Do you have anything to add? I think just the takeaway point uh, of the article is just knowing the community that you're working in and knowing what resources you have available, certainly as limited as the resources are in the Kumbu, you know, I think you can appreciate that there actually were some resources that we were able to utilize, like that, like those helicopters and a lot of a lot of truckers that had healthcare capabilities. And so, you know, going into a system uh, with a knowledge base of how are we going to address something if, if our capabilities are overrun. I do a lot of volunteer work in Uganda and I work with an organization there. And I literally just had a conversation with our director uh, for that organization about, you know, what would we do if we had some sort of incident occur where we are in Uganda and we had a get people out or, or our systems were overwhelmed. And, you know, it, it's definitely, it's something to think about. We all love traveling to these great places, but if we're going to do aid work in some of these areas, kind of what happens when something like an earthquake or an avalanche occurs and, you know, think a little foresight may help you in the long run. Oh, yeah. Being situationally aware and being somehow prepared for a potentially bad scenario is good advice. And, it carried you through in this case. So thanks for speaking to us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. All right, what wouldn't you do even for a million dollars? I'm going to say eat an insect. Good answer. Oh, God. Good answer.
You wouldn't eat an insect for a million dollars? Man, barbecue sauce. <laughs> grill, be sauteing them in a pan. You just put salt, pepper. Eat an insect. Here we go, next topic, the green whistle, methoxyfluorine, explained by Dr. Matt Wilkes, interviewed by Jake Jensen. Jake, take it away. Thanks for agreeing to speak with us today, Matt, and to discuss this paper. The title of the paper is Methoxyfluorine for Procedural Analgesia at 4,470 meters of altitude. And I was quite happy when I saw the paper, when I saw this paper in the title, Several months ago, I ran across an article describing something called Australia's Little Green Whistle for Pain. Before that, I had never really heard of methoxyfluorine being used as an analgesic and was intrigued by what I read in that paper, which of course led to looking up other papers. And I passed it on to some of the other faculty here at UNM with the International Mountain Medicine Center. And not surprisingly, none of them had really ever heard of it used for analgesia um, or had experience with this. And I'm assuming it's the same for much of our audience here in the United States. With that said, Matt, could you give us a brief background about methoxyfluorine and describe a little bit about this case to the audience? Certainly, and, and thank you very much for having me. It's, it's methoxyfluorine, certainly a drug that is coming in back into UK clinical practice. Um, but for our audience as well, it's definitely a current rather than sort of well-known topic. Um, methoxyfluorine. Uh, is an anesthetic agent. Like under other anesthetic agents, it's a, a liquid volatile hydrocarbon. And it was used relatively widely in the 1970s, but people discovered through its use that it had dose-dependent um, nephrotoxicity, that it's metabolized partly in the kidneys. And during its metabolism, it produces fluoride ions, which can damage the renal tissue. So as a result, it kind of fell out of favor in anesthetic doses. And in the US, it was withdrawn by the FDA. In Australasia, so Australia and New Zealand, they kept using it, but in lower analgesic doses. It's a little bit like nitrous oxide in that sense, in that if you give someone enough nitrous oxide, it would function as an anesthetic, but actually we use it at uh, analgesic doses. And so they did the same thing. And it's become really the sort of the mainstay of their pre-hospital practice for analgesia for short but painful journeys or procedures such as splinting. Would you like me to tell you a little bit about how you would give it or how the inhaler works? I think it'd be great to hear about this case. I mean, this is something, as you described, was, you know, used as kind of an anesthetic agent in the past and fell out of favor, but now used kind of for pain management on a short term or for procedures. Tell us about this case and your experience using it. In the autumn of 2017, my wife Ellie and I were two of four doctors working at the International Porter Protection Group Rescue Post, which is in Machermo. So I know that many of your audience being wilderness practitioners will know the Everest region well, but Instead of taking the normal route to Everest Base Camp, if you take a slightly more circuitous route uh, via the Machermo Valley and up to the Gokyo Lakes, then you come across two clinics. And the clinics there exist primarily to look after porters and locals, but are funded a bit like the Everest DR by trekkers coming through. And we were there for the autumn season, the post-monsoon season, and probably about two thirds of the way through, um, we were woken up 
at 2.30 in the morning uh, to go to one of the lodges near the, where the clinic was. And we'd heard that there was a guy who was in abdominal pain, but we didn't know much more than that. And when we went there, we found a 61-year-old Australian gentleman who um, was in acute urinary retention. He'd had no problems going to the loo during the previous day, but on getting out of bed at about 10 o'clock, he could only pass small volumes. And then by the time we saw him a few hours later, he was in quite severe pain. We brought him back to our rescue post, um, but the rescue post has a very, very tight formulary. Um, because of its sort of charitable nature, it only stocks things that are used frequently. And sadly, one of those things was not urinary catheters. So in order to um, decompress his bladder, we had to do a superfusion aspiration, which was a new procedure to all of us involved, ones that we'd read about, ones that we'd seen, but not one that we tried. And to complicate things still further, we only had 10 mil syringes and green 21 gauge needles. So knowing the volume of a bladder and knowing the volume of that syringe, we were worried it was going to take us quite a long time and be relatively unpleasant for the gentleman involved. He was in such pain at this point that he was pacing around the room and we were acutely aware that we would have to give him some analgesia that would not only cover the procedure, but give him enough systemic comfort to lie still for us to aspirate his bladder. We had uh, a few different analgesic options there, and we can talk about that later, but we chose to use methoxyfluorine. So we, in, we gave him paracetamol because we had it. We locally infiltrated uh, the skin and the area around his bladder. And over about 15 minutes, we were able to aspirate his bladder. And during that time, he used methoxyfluorine, got good analgesia from it. And ultimately, we were able to evacuate him by helicopter the next day. Um, when he went to hospital, they found that he uh, had an enlarged prostate and he's since gone back to Australia and had that dealt with. So here you are in this beautiful location high up in the Himalayas with limited supplies, performing a procedure that you'd read about, but, you know, is a less commonly performed procedure. So this is austere medicine. This is what we absolutely love to hear about is to expand our knowledge base of the potential applications of other medications and tools to provide great care for our patients. So, you know, you mentioned all the medications that you did give to him. You, you used the methoxyfluorine, you gave him some paracetamol, did local inf infiltration with some lidocaine. What other medications were you carrying or did you have available in this clinic? And why did you choose methoxyfluorine over anything else that you had with you? So we had, in terms of oral analgesia, we only had um, paracetamol and non-steroidals. In terms of parenteral options, we also had uh, parenteral dictaphenac and we had tramadol, and that was all. We gave him the paracetamol. We erred away from non-steroidals just in case, uh, really, the, the sort of little doctor reaction of, oh, maybe, maybe he's going to sustain some renal damage from hydronephrosis, or maybe this is actually a renal problem, so let's stay away from um, giving him dose of non-steroidals. That really just left us with intravenous tramadol or the methoxyfluorine. Um, more from hospital experience than anything else, um, I was reluctant to give him intravenous tramadol, partly because at the time of onset, we wanted to get on with this, partly because well, I think one of the key principles of osteo medicine is that whatever you put into someone, you can't really take it out again. So I didn't want to give him something that was potentially sedating. Um, and also because I didn't feel that this was going to be a long-term painful experience for him. I felt that once we decompressed his bladder, he'd actually be feeling reasonable. And so he didn't need something that was as long-lasting as tramadol. So that really left us with methoxyfluorine as our only option. How'd it go, Matt? It went good. Your arm feel bad. 
good. You know? I know. So it wasn't so bad going to sleep, was it? Is it no. Going, going to sleep's awesome. Yeah. Well, good. I feel dizzy. <laughs> Why do I feel dizzy? All right, so yeah, it sounds like given how you felt that you could kind of reverse the situation there rather quickly by performing this procedure, you wanted to choose something that you knew would be not very sedating or sedating at all, and that would have a short half-life. So with that said, a lot of groups carry with them things like fentanyl that can be given intravenously, intranasally, or even as a lozenge or the fentanyl lollipop. And another agent that's very common out there that a lot of groups carry with them is ketamine. In what ways do you feel that methoxyfluorine is superior to some of these other common and maybe even more widely known alternative agents? Well, I think the truth of it is there haven't been very many head-to-head -head comparisons. Certainly the best data comes from the Australian Ambulance Service. So they did a retrospective review of just over a thousand patients treated for the kind of visceral pain that our patient was suffering. Um, and they compared methoxyfluorine to intranasal fentanyl. And what they found was that, was that methoxyfluorine offered better analgesia at five minutes compared to intranasal fentanyl. But by the time they'd arrived at the hospital, fentanyl was providing better and more consistent pain relief. And given the time of onset and offset, that kind of makes sense. Um, the other reasons why I, I, I like fentanyl is that it's very hemodynamically stable. And they did compare methoxyfluorine to fentanyl and they found that perhaps it was even slightly more hemodynamically stable still. In terms of ketamine, I've not seen any direct comparisons between the two. Ketamine, I think, is, is, is in quite a fashionable stage at the moment. And one of my sort of thoughts about ketamine is that when given the ketamine hammer, everything looks like a ketamine nail. And while it is an excellent drug, it is still something that would be either be given orally or parentally would be long lasting, can be dissociative in a, in a situation like this that was quite scary for the patient, could have led to a relatively unpleasant and unpredictable experience. So A, we didn't have it, that's why I didn't give it, but I think even if we had had it, I'd have probably still gone for methoxyfluorine. No, I like that. It, it doesn't last too long. They have a fairly intact mental status, no need for IV access or to give anything, you know, IM by any means. Rapid onset, and it seems like in your paper, you, you mentioned the vital signs didn't change significantly. And you also mentioned the ability for self-administration and titration. Can you give us a description of how that works or just the device itself? Sure. And I think um, you've described there actually a, a number of reasons why it is great for the remote practitioner. Um, it's the, the lack of intravenous access requirement is a great thing when it's cold. And the inhaler itself can be used, you know, even if the person's gloved. Um, so it is very nice for the robust and remote setting. We'll talk a little bit, if you like, about, about the potential effects of cold on methoxyfluorine because that is one of the concerns. But to use the inhaler, uh, it comes in a sort of plastic packet as the inhaler device and a three milliliter ampule of the liquid that will be vaporized. You take them both out, you take the ampule, the end is quite clever, the end of the device can be used to open the top of the ampule. So even if you've got gloved hands, it's still easy to open. Um, having opened it, you then, inside the inhaler device is a polypropylene wick, and you pour the contents of the bottle into the inhaler while rotating it. So the wick inside it becomes saturated. You then give it to the patient and ask them to breathe in and out through the mouthpiece. Now the mouthpiece is unidirectional, so they breathe in the agent and they don't breathe it out through the vaporization chamber. 
Um, you ask them to start quite gently because I think, to put it in a non-technical way, people can get a bit of a head rush with it. <laughs> They then breathe intermittently on the inhaler as, inhaler as required to maintain pain relief. So in that sense, it's quite similar to Entonox or nitrous oxide in that it's something that's patient directed. You give them the mouthpiece, you give them the control and the autonomy, and they titrate it as they need. It's got a little loop around it so you can put it around their wrist in case they drop it when if they get a little bit sleepy. Um, and one of the concerns about it is cumulative exposure to, for rescue personnel. So when you're putting it together, you fit a charcoal filter on the top of the device that adsorbs the expired and fluorine. Um, it's also got a distal port that you can put supplementary oxygen on, so they can that while that will dilute your mixture slightly, you can increase their fraction of inspired oxygen. So it sounds like something that can easily be learned and implemented. Just takes a little bit of time and actually seeing the device. Um, any disadvantage or difficulties that you see with the use of methoxyfluorine? I know you mentioned cold in the paper. But any anything, would you like to expand on that? Sure. So I suppose there's the, the theoretical and the practical. Really. The theoretical disadvantage is that because it's an anaesthetic vapour, and without going sort of too into the kind of depths of anaesthesiology, what matters with uh, anything you inhale is the partial pressure, not the concentration. And the partial pressure of any of these vapours is related to cold, related to its temperature. So as the environment gets colder, in theory, less of it will vaporize. So the patient will get a reduced dose of whatever it is you're giving. And a lot of what anesthesia machines do is compensate for temperature changes with vaporization. So we were concerned that where we were was certainly well into the, the minus temperatures. We didn't have a thermometer, but cold enough that things were cheerfully freezing, that if we gave the patient this drug, they wouldn't really get enough of it for it to be effective. The only way we can sort of judge that really is, is on the results. And he certainly felt comfortable enough for us to do what we needed to do. But there, to my knowledge, hasn't been any formal field studies of how much vapor is delivered when using it in cold climates. You'd think intuitively that barometric pressure would make a difference, but actually uh, saturated vapor pressure and partial pressure isn't related to altitude. So the fact that it was altitude wasn't a problem, it was the fact that it was cold. So that's the theoretical disadvantage. The, the sort of practical ones, the first for your listeners and your practitioners is it's not currently available in the United States. Um, though if you were doing an expedition overseas, it may obviously be possible for you to get that medicine with you. The other disadvantages is that it does have a little bit of a hangover effect. So when though it has a very rapid onset there is a noticeable lull between when they stop breathing on it and when they return to full consciousness and that's quite prominent if you use it in children perhaps more so than in adults your boobs are like clap your boobs i know jesus is real now because your boobs were like the pillows to heaven yeah and i rolled down with fuckers like a motorboat with my back of my hand Oh, yeah. The other downside for people who are using it in a kind of expedition setting is is that it's relatively short acting. You get about half an hour to 45 minutes out of an ampule. So if you have a short, painful procedure, such as someone's hurt their leg and you need to splint it, 
brilliant. It's perfect for that. But if actually you've got to evacuate someone over several days, then you're much better off with something longer acting. So it's really using it as the right tool for the job. Um, it does have some contraindications. Uh, the absolute contraindication, like any anaesthetic agent, is if they've had malignant hypothermia before um, or anaesthetic hepatitis, if they had a liver, liver injury following inhalation of anaesthesia gas. Um, but the manufacturers sort of say their relative contraindications would be renal liver impairment, diabetes, if they're taking enzyme inducers, just in the worry that that might somehow increase the fluoride ion concentration, um, or if they're taking tetracyclines. I'm actually less concerned about kidney damage, having seen the Australian data and having seen how much more you needed to use to damage someone during anaesthesia. But I do take the point of one of the reviewers of the article who said that if you're giving someone an anaesthetic agent and you're worried about reactions to anaesthesia, if they don't speak English, you might not be able to ask them if they've had an anaesthetic before. So I think it's a great tool for short, sharp, painful things. Um, but I think it's less good if you've got a long expedition where with a prolonged evacuation with someone who doesn't speak your language. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think with each patient encounter and trip, you have to consider you know, what are the potential outcomes that could happen, you know, given where we're going and build your medical kit accordingly. But as you said, this is a great tool for those short, painful procedures such as splinting or um, exactly or for something similar to what you guys did. Um, you did mention kind of one of the effects um, that, that, this, that this anesthetic had. And I, I believe if I'm remembering right, the patient said that he was a little bit blissed out how long was he in that state? He was in that state. I was um, chatting to my colleague who was there with me, and we think he was. We think he entered his his blissed out state, which is what we wanted while we were um, sort of jabbing his bladder. Probably about a minute to two minutes after starting to breathe it, and for probably about five minutes after stopping breathing on it. After that, we were able to get him up. We were able to take him into. Uh, the room where we keep the patient before they get evacuated. He's able to walk normally, talk normally, and and look after himself at that stage. But for about five minutes, I think after he stopped breathing on it, he wasn't quite himself. So overall, it sounds like your patient did great, had an excellent outcome thanks to the care that you guys provided him. Have you heard of any other case of cases of methoxyfluorine used for analgesia, not just at altitude, but any other austere or remote environments? You know, Australia and the Australian Ambulance Service is to some degree a remote environment. They go to some very far away places and it's a standard of care there. In UK Mountain Rescue, they're trialing it at the moment. Um, I suppose that it really comes down to what you were saying before about the alternatives. And we're very good at using the drugs that we're familiar with. And so where alternatives exist, things like as you say, intranasal fentanyl or ketamine, and they've been incorporated into training and they've been incorporated into standard operating procedures. I suppose the real question is not are there examples out there of other people using it, but there are examples of it being so good and so essential that they should replace the standards of care that we have now. And I'm not sure I've seen enough to justify taking away, for example, intranasal fentanyl, which is what Mountain Rescue uses currently in the UK, and replacing it with this. Um, but I do think it can be an incredibly useful tool on expeditions. 
things where you might not want to take opiates with you, where you might um, have lay people, where you might be a sole practitioner. I think it's very, very helpful, potentially very helpful for that. Any last comments that you have for our audience? I think not really. I think only if you get the opportunity to, to see it or to look at any of the videos online, show you how to use it. It's quite a useful thing to know how to use because even if it's not available in uh, the United States, if you're in expeditions in other places or if you come to the clinic in Nepal, you might see it there. And once you've seen someone use it once, it's very straightforward. But if not, if you were just kind of confronted with the green whistle and the ampule, it might be, it might at least give you pause before you could easily start using it. But no, I think, I mean, it's my first experience of using it in that setting. And I was, I was impressed with it. It certainly helped us do what we needed to do. And I think it could be a very valuable tool for our community. Excellent. So there we have it, methoxyflurane, a very lightweight, easy to use medication for short-term analgesia. It could be very beneficial when we need to perform procedures on patients in austere environments. There might be some better alternatives if we need to evacuate or provide analgesia for a longer time frame, but definitely a medication that I hope to hear and learn more about in the future and will definitely consider on future expeditions and trips. Great. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And that concludes our Wilderness and Environmental Medicine live podcast from Wilderness and Environmental Medicine, the official journal of the Wilderness Medical Society. Copyright Wilderness Medical Society, published by Elsevier. Don't forget to complete the CME questions at www.wms.org under Members. And drop us a line at wemlive.wms.org. Be safe and talk to you next time.